Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. I'm here today on the What Fuels You podcast with Amy Nelson, the founder and CEO of The Riveter, a co-working space built by women for everyone that now has five locations. Amy started her career in law and politics before pivoting to become an entrepreneur, which was heavily driven by the challenges she personally saw that women were facing in working environments, geared mostly towards men. She is a force and inspiration in every single way. She's a mother of three and an amazing figure in our Seattle community and beyond. Welcome, Amy. Thanks so much, Shauna. It's great to be here. Um, So we're going to start with Rapid Fire. All right. Okay. Favorite podcast? Uh, Serial. Okay. Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. Spinning or yoga? Spinning all the way. (laughs) Hardest decision that you've ever made? The hardest decision I ever made was to move to Seattle. Favorite movie? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, I love that movie. Dream getaway spot? Zahuatanejo, Mexico. If you could have any guest visit you at the Riveter, who would it be? Michelle Obama. Oh, you're going to make that happen. (laughs) I want inside tickets to that. Seriously. We'll make it happen. Um, What would people be surprised to learn about you? I think people would be surprised to learn that I love to cook. Oh, that is surprising. Yeah, I love it. I'm trying hard to become a cook. It's a challenge. All like the whether time. I do it all the time is Does one Carl thing, cook? but I love to do it. Oh, Carl's an amazing cook. Yeah. He oh. just makes like steak Meat and potatoes. potatoes. <laughs> yeah. So I make all the other stuff. It's time to do more spinning, right? When yep. you got that. Um, okay. So this is super fun. I'm psyched to have you. I know that everybody, at least in Seattle, um, knows your name, knows a lot about you and what you're building, the movement that you're building. Um, and as a woman, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, you've done it, too. I mean, you you, you have built the path before me. Thank you. No, I, we're just super grateful. Um, and when I first met you, I don't think I realized that that's like the level that you were going to go to. And then it was like, is Amy triplets? Like she's everywhere. <laughs> like, how is she here and there and at home and I, on the road and nursing? I, I've just been kind of in awe. Um, and I so I wanted to kind of take you back Um more importantly to kind of the early days of you as a little girl, because I'm meeting you as this force. But my guess is that you've always been this person. I've always had a lot of energy and Mm -hmm. I've always been really curious about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those two things are true. And so did that come from like, tell me about your family. You have I know you have a sister and I've met your mom. I have an older sister Mm -hmm. uh, who is also an attorney and she lives in San Francisco with her husband, who's a pediatric cardiologist. And they Mm -hmm. have two little kids. Okay. Um, I am two and a half years younger than my sister, and I am very much the younger sister yeah. in the sibling pair. I am the same with my brother. Um, and then my mother was a public school teacher for 36 years. who got her master's when I was in college. And my father is a former attorney and now a small business owner. And so describe your, like, how did you grow up? You grew up in a suburb, a city? Where yeah. did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio mm-hmm. called Upper Arlington, which is where my parents grew up. I grew up with all of my grandparents and I grew up with almost all of my 22 first cousins. 
Oh my god! Nearby, yep. twenty-two first cousins. Are you? Is it Italian or Catholic? Catholic, Irish Catholic, Irish Catholic. Yeah. Okay. My <laughs> so, husband is twenty-seven, and I've got like six. And yeah. I'm like, th- that's a lot. It's a lot. It was amazing. You know, I had one sibling, my sister, and she's my best friend. But it was amazing to grow up with this enormous extended family. Yeah. I always felt very. And are surrounded. they still there? Yes. So are they like, what are you doing in Seattle? They think it's like Alaska? <laughs> well, I mean, I have one cousin who's, she's also a lawyer and she lives in San Diego. But almost, I think all the rest of them live in Columbus, Ohio. Um, wow. I know. Uh, I Actually, I still have cousins who are in middle school, though. I mean, and I have And you grew stand. up, um, did you go to private school, public school? I went to public school. Okay. Um, same high school my parents went to. I... Most of my closest friends um, are friends I've known since I was five or six. Still uh, to this yeah, day. Still to this day. And how did you have a, like, uh, most likely to blank? I did. What were you? I was most likely to succeed. So was I. <laughs> oh, like, well, actually, mine was mine was most likely to become an unemployed millionaire. And so I didn't know if that meant, like. I think that means succeed. I think, like, the unemployment eventually, part comes after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. <laughs> Let's but, go with that conclusion. Yeah, I'm going to go with that one. And yep. so, um do you have a clear understanding of kind of what your family values were growing up, or has it been morphing over time? I, it's actually, I mean, I think about it a lot because I have three little girls who are four, two, and one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think about... That's another story yeah. later in the podcast. <laughs> but I mean, I think about all the time, you know, I think my parents did an incredible job with me, with me and my sister. Um, and I think about what they did because I want to replicate what they did. Uh, and I think a huge part of it was they just gave us lots of love and lots of time to play. Mm-hmm. But then when we wanted to do something, when we wanted to try something, if we signed up, we had to finish it. We had to follow through. We oh. were not allowed to quit midway. And that was like, and I remember I was like, I was in, I was in seventh grade, I think. And I'd been playing tennis for a number of years. And my sister is an excellent tennis player. I mean, my sister was an all-American college tennis player. And it was around seventh grade that I realized I was never going to be an all-American college tennis player. And also all of my best friends were playing tennis. My sister. And I just, I didn't want to do it. I was a swimmer. Did you know that I played college tennis? I didn't know. (laughs) I I I probably know your sister, although you guys are younger than me. (laughs) Well, I I was a swimmer and a water polo player. And it was around that time I decided that's what I wanted to do. And so once I made that decision, you know, it was midway through, like, the winter tennis season. Mm-hmm. And I promptly told my parents, I was like, I've made my, my life decision here. I'm ready to quit. And they're like, well, that's not happening. That's not happening. You're yeah. going to have to finish this out. That's a challenge as a parent. And you're, you had a strong female figure in a mother. I did. And I had a father who was an equal co-parent, which I think is equally as important. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Um, and, you know, we played, my sister and I, I never thought we were... There was a difference to having sons and daughters when I was little. And I think that's something that we as a society need to think really hard about, right? What we teach our girls to do, what we teach our boys to do. And I was taught to take risks and be brave, that it's okay to fail, mm-hmm. be loud, mm-hmm. right? And these are things take I de- up space. take up space. And these yeah. are things I definitely struggled with in my middle school years. Yeah. Well, there's all studies around right. that. And I have a middle schooler and all the camouflaging that happens around that age and it's crazy. not wanting to stand out or be too smart or too right. loud. Yeah. No, and then I think, but I think eventually I realized, like, I am smart. I like being smart. It's yeah. a positive. And it's cool to be smart. Yeah, it's cool to be smart. And yeah. I think that was, you know, my friends that I grew up with, the girls, you know, like three of us were in the top 15 in our high school class. And, like, that was cool. Yeah. Like, we were proud of that. And I, I think love that, that. Was, that was good. I love it. It's it's hard today. That's a whole other subject is the parenting thing. But so you went on to go to Emory. And how did you choose Emory? I mean, honestly, my older sister went there. And so you were like, I want to be close to her. Well, it was interesting. My um, my parents got divorced while mm-hmm. I was in high school. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was like it was it was a hard period of what, life. How old were you? 16. 
Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Well, they're together now. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. That's a whole other. other, Yeah. Um, Wait, they're together? Yeah. Think they are married again. I don't. They're not married again, but they never dated other people. They 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 were high school sweethearts. Oh, yeah. yeah, It's really fascinating. Um, But anyway, I wanted to, you know, my sister and I went through it differently because she was away at college when it happened. And so it was really kind of grounding for me to go and be in the same place as her. Also, I mean, I love her. And Emory was a great school. And I wanted to study political science. And um, Jimmy Carter is attached to the school with his Carter Center, which works on um, democracy and freedom of information and health around the world. And so I ended up going to work for him, which was amazing. I saw that. That's awesome. Yeah. So Carter or Obama? (laughs) I think they're both incredible. They're both incredible people. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing experience that you had, like, that foundation at that young age. I was fortunate. But also— Like, I realized, too, like, as I've, you know, over the past 20 years, I was lucky, but I also, I'm a really hard worker. Mm-hmm. And I, and so much of that is, like, if you've got that hustle when you're young, you can spin that into a million different directions. And I think the Carter Center was amazing because I, I found out very quickly when I joined as an intern that if you worked hard, if you took initiative, if you did went the extra mile, then all the doors would open for you. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up working there full time and had these incredible experiences I always figure that you want to take the most out of any position you're in, learn the most, connect with the most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Carter Center taught me to do that, right? They, they taught me about the power of a network and the power of connection. Yeah. We've done a great job of it. It's awesome. And so you went on to um, Emory, and then I also know that you studied Spanish. Were you wanting to do something in international affairs, or how did you want to – or is Spanish just like a passion? No. I mean, oh, my gosh. Honestly, I'm terrible at languages. Spanish was so I, hard. I, I regret not learning Spanish but I wanted to study abroad mm. in South America. And so did I, you do that? I did. I studied abroad in Buenos Aires, mm. which I loved. Um, I found Latin American politics and culture to be just endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was how I ended up then interning at the Carter Center. But, yeah, I was always very fascinated from a young age at kind of the global view of things and, and what was happening in the world. I mean, I have my mom has a poem saved from when I was like eight or nine about the famine in Ethiopia because it just like really – affected me mm-hmm. seeing pictures of starving little kids when I was a little kid. Oh, I couldn't comprehend how something like that could happen in the world. I remember in eighth grade discovering that for the first yeah. time and freaking out about like it. Like why we couldn't fix it? Yeah. Why we weren't fixing it? And that we still haven't fixed it. And we still haven't. And that there are starving children in America. I mean, all like right, yeah. all of these. Um, and so I always wanted to work in kind of the international arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- I studied it. My Major, I couldn't find the word. My major in college was international studies. Yeah. And then did that at the Carter Center and then went to law school and thought I would go right back into that field. Always we think one thing. Always we think one thing. Yeah. And then it takes you into another place. And then is that – so that took you to NYU. And I know that – my guess is – so in college, did you do the whole sorority thing? I did. I was in a sorority. Which sorority? Alpha Delta Pi. Oh, 80 Pi. Yeah. I was a tri-delta. Nice. Um, And so – did the um, friends you make in college, did you just layer those on top of your childhood friends and you've stayed in touch with all those people? Yeah. Yeah. I have some and, really good friends from and college. of those people, how many are still, you know, working? Just straight up working. Not career, not Amy Nelson level working, but just Probably working. Probably half. Probably half. Yeah. And by choice or by circumstance? People, people... still working and say by choice. The people at home, I don't know. I have lots of thoughts about why people go home. I think some women want to go home, like mm-hmm. some men want to go home, and mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. 
I think like on a meta level, uh, corporate America for women is like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. Like I don't think it's one thing. Yeah. But I think it's like all of the different policies or lack of policies. Yeah. And that support. Right. It's just it's a ridiculous system. I mean, I always think like there's a statistic and lean in that I talk about all the time. Yeah. That 43 percent of highly trained professional women off ramp after they have kids. Yeah. And these are women with uh, college and graduate degrees like. I don't know many women who paid for law school like I did and are like, I'll do this for four or five years and then stay home. And I interview women all the time that say that they would love to come back in, but they may want more of a flex schedule or they may want like, can you find me something that's like 10 to 2 so I can still do pickup? They're trying to balance it. And someone has to crack that code because I haven't found that my clients are open to it. I think it's so hard. And as a CEO, I think about it all the time too, right? But like, I think, I think it has to change on both sides, right? Like, American school schedules are ridiculous because they don't match American work schedules. Yeah. So maybe we could try to somehow make those two meet. A lot of these women I know that have um, gotten off the kind of corporate America path have now become entrepreneurs. Yes. And that's how, well, we can kind of fast forward to that. But I don't want to skip over you going to law school and then becoming a corporate litigator. Yeah, that that's part of badass. my life. <laughs> that's well, like a big a decade, part of your life. It was 13 years of my life all in. I am... Um, so I went to law school at NYU, which, you know, for me was like... So where were you living in New York? This is incredible. I lived everywhere in New York, but um, I was a below 14th Street person when I lived Amen. in Manhattan. Me too. And then I spent a couple of years in Brooklyn, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that was because of a boyfriend. Um, Not Carl. No. <laughs> we won't talk about the that. The pre-Carl era. Yeah, PC. Um, but, you know, going to NYU was just this remarkable thing. It was a top five law school. And um, I think when I got in, and then I got a half scholarship there oh, for merit, amazing. which is amazing. And yeah. I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. Like, right, you know, I'm a kid from Columbus, Ohio. Like, I'm getting to do these really big things and being and be in these rooms where I didn't know if I'd ever have access, which is, I think, something we don't talk about enough in this country. Um, and so I loved law school. Um, I'm still paying for it <laughs> all these years later. Um, but I loved it. It was an incredible experience. And at the end of it, you know, rather than go back into international development, I went to work for a big law firm. Mm-hmm. And part of that decision was that I needed to financially. It's interesting. If, when you go to uh, a lot of law schools, they have a, they have a very extensive um, recruitment center. And actually, before your second year of law school, right? Yeah, before your second you year of law school. right? Yeah, but the, like the week before law school starts, you go early and you have a week of interviewing mm. where all the law firms come to campus you interview with dozens of them, you get callbacks, you go interview with the attorneys, and then you spend the summer between your second and third year at one of those law firms mm-hmm. for 10 weeks. And I had an interesting experience because I chose a great law firm that I really liked. Um, and then right when I started as a summer associate between my second and third year, the Carter Center called. And they mm-hmm. said, there was just an election in Ethiopia. Um, it, it, we're, it didn't go well. We're going over there to work on, um, to observe electoral fraud hearings. We'd love for you to come since I'd had experience working on elections in other countries with the Carter Center. And so I went to my law firm and said, can I um, postpone? No, I was like, should I just leave in the middle of this for a month and go work in Ethiopia? And they said yes, which was incredible. And you had already accepted the offer? I was like, I was there. Like I was oh, already working already there, there for the summer. And I was like, I'm going to go in two weeks for a month and then I'll come back That's for the last really cool. three weeks. And what was the criterion that you used to select the law firm? Was, People, were you looking at? I'm but a were you looking at? Well, in, me too. But were you looking at, at that time, were you aware of kind of your need to see a balance of power and influence among men no, and women? No. And I don't think in law firms in America you can ever find that today. I mean, yeah. But like, now I think people are, I mean, 
I think I, because of the work you're doing and others, people are thinking about these things. Think I'm thinking are, about them differently because of you. I think people are thinking about them. I think it's going to take some time until people are really acting on them. I think so too, but them. at least thinking about them is yeah. like step one. It is. It's right? an important step. It's like no. get to the gym. Like yeah. just, we just need to get through the door right. and then we can figure it out. But at least my awareness has gone up. Yeah. I mean, I think, sure. it, like, I think there's a moment. I think we're at a moment in time, which is not a trend. But a societal change. It feels completely different Mm -hmm. because having been a woman in a leadership role for so many years, there's been a lot of talk. I've been to a lot of women events. And I think the difference is now what I feel is that women are um, kind of advocating for each other more. I think that's right. And they're helping each other more. Where like I want to help you not just because you're – I don't want to help you because you're a woman. I want mm-hmm. to help you because you're a badass woman. No, thanks. Um, but that's the same thing. Like, I don't I don't think any women are looking for handouts. It's no, more, I don't it's think women more, ever have. I think, and I think, like... But it's just an awareness of, like, knowing that, you know, maybe some women aren't um, asking. We have to lean in to make it happen regardless if they're asking for help or not. Just pushing the yeah. intros. Women like you and I are good at the networking thing, good yeah. at building... Um, relationships. And some women have other skills, but they're not necessarily great at putting themselves out there. I think that's right. And I think something that like, it it became really clear to me early on as a female founder, that the only way I was going to change the system was to get into the system Mm -hmm. and just do the thing. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that I can carry other women with me in that and stand shoulder to shoulder, encourage people to get in the arena to the extent that they can, because Mm -hmm. it's a privilege to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, that that's my job. So I went to law school from 2003 to 2006. I worked with a firm in New York from 2006 to 2011 during the financial crisis as mm-hmm. a financial services litigator, which was like... Fun times. Fun times. I mean, it was so interesting and amazing. And I got to be in the middle of so much so much of history, really. Um, but it was also like drinking from a fire hose, which I now know is something that like I just elect to do. Yeah. I can say that's I don't your want DNA. to. That's what I'm I do. I'm sure you get told to slow down. I do too. And it's yeah. like, that's just Why? not my comfort. It's so boring. Yeah. Um, so... Anyway, though, I've also been really involved in politics, and so I was on Obama's National Finance Committee, and I helped start Gen 44, which was the under-40 arm of the DNC. And at a certain point, when I turned around 30, I knew that I wanted to work more in politics um, and try to pivot into that maybe more full-time, and I didn't see a path to that in New York, especially—and part of that, right, like in a very realistic sense, was the cost of living. I didn't know that I could afford to live in New York, pay up my law school loans— all the things and not be a full-time corporate litigator, right? Yeah. Yeah. So all of those things were hard. And I love New York and I still miss it. Um, There's so much that's great about it. But I thought if I really want to get more involved in politics, why don't I go back to where I grew up in in the Midwest? Um, And I grew up in Ohio, but I spent my summers between the ages of 13 and 20 uh, at this camp in far northern Minnesota, like almost at the border of Canada. And I love Minnesota. It's a progressive, independent state. So I made this big decision to move to Minneapolis, which was scary. But I also always have said to myself, when you make a big decision, there are very few big decisions in life that are yeah. one-way doors. Yeah, Most of them are two-way doors. Like, you can always go back, right? And I was like, if Minnesota doesn't work out, I can always go back to New York. Um, this is how I convinced myself to take huge leaps. I, I'm, I'm the same. <laughs> I always keep one foot in. I kept my apartment in New York when I moved here. Yeah. And, and I, I feel it. like it's like, for me, it's like other than having kids. And that's a terrible thing to say because it makes me sound like marriage isn't permanent. But like other than having kids, truly, there are very few decisions in yeah. life that you can't change. A hundred percent. And so anyway, so I moved to Minneapolis. Loved it. Well, I mean, the first few months I was like, what have I done? Yeah. Um, I was like that for the first year yeah. in Seattle. I like, but, I, but then I, I loved it. And a friend of mine 
who I went to college with in Atlanta. And this is where I always talk about the power of a network, right? I emailed a friend of mine I'd gone to college with in Atlanta who'd grown up in Minneapolis. He was in the Foreign Service at the time, I think, like, living in Indonesia. But I emailed him, and I was like, hey, I'm moving to Minneapolis. I'd love to meet any of your friends. He introduced me to a friend of his named Molly, who was also a corporate litigator who had moved from New York to Minneapolis, even though she was from Minneapolis. We met. We totally hit it off. And within, like, an hour of meeting, she was like, you have to meet my older brother's best friend. He's like a brother to me, and you guys are like two peas in a pod. And that's my husband. Wow. And it's crazy. And she just knew. She just knew. And so, and it, the other and did thing, you just know? Well, it's interesting. I mean, when I met him, we talked for four hours. He was incredible. I really liked him. Yeah. Um, but it was our, on our second date. Um, and he also, like, after our first date, he like, immediately emailed me and was like, I forgot to get your number. I'd like to ask you out again. And I'm like, I'm definitely not in Manhattan anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so on our second date, he, um, we were talking about our parents in our, our childhoods. And um, my husband was born in Belgium. His father was in the State Department, but he grew up in Minneapolis. And he said his mom was from Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, that's where I'm from. And we figured out that she was from the same suburb I grew up in. So after the date, I called my mom and asked, oh, do you know so-and-so, my husband's uh, mother's name? And she was like, why are you asking me this? And I said, well, I met her son. And she goes, well, did you meet Carl or Wit? Carl is my husband. Wit's my brother-in-law. And I was like, well, I met Carl. And she was like, you met Carl when you were three. Like, that's your <gasps> oh my gosh, aunt's best chills. friend's mom. I have total chills. Yeah. Crazy. Are you kidding no. me? No. So that's probably why we got married. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, but you no, like, I mean, and just, Mike But dropped. so, like, our third date was at Carl's mom's house, um, which was definitely not Well, you Manhattan. know who you're getting. Yeah. I think there's a lot to – I think we don't talk about this a lot in this day and age, but there's a lot to commonality and shared experience and having that frame of reference. And in a world where we're more and more disconnected, that was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, and so, I, knew, I knew nobody in common with my husband. Yeah. I know. It's hard. And then, hard. you know, six months after we met, he got a job with Amazon. Six months after we met. And he's like, let's do this. Rock and roll. Yeah. Giddy up. Yeah. Seattle time. And I was like, Were okay. you like, where is Seattle? I've seen Grey's Anatomy. I mean, like, I'd been here once. Um, but I was like, wow. Okay. That's a big decision. Because I loved being in Minnesota. I said to myself, um, well, I regret more taking the risk and having it not work, work out or not taking the risk. Yeah. And always, always when I ask myself that question, so the answer funny. is I'll regret that's, not that's taking the risk. always the question I ask, yeah. too. And so, and, I, and so we sold, we each sold almost everything we owned, and we just drove a car out here. And, and that, what year was that? 2012. I mean, can we just take a moment? We don't really have a moment because we're trying to cruise through a podcast, but I feel like it's like a namaste. Like, are you kidding me? 2012 to 2006 years, you've had three kids— are you kidding me? And started the Riveter, which we're going to get to, but that's nuts. You had to just be like, I have to just not try to make this New York, not try to make this Minnesota. Yeah. You didn't know people. No, and it did take me a while to find a community here in Seattle. But do you have your people people? I or do. Or your community do. of like work people? No, I have I have my friends too. Like we live in a community in Seattle called West Seattle. I love um, Which is people fantastic. People are very deliberate about moving to West Seattle. Yeah. When we moved here, we knew three people who lived in Seattle and they yeah. all lived in West Seattle. When you got to Seattle, tell me about that first yeah, year Yeah. So I transferred with the firm I was with in Minneapolis to their Seattle office. And I stayed there through having my first child. Mm-hmm. Um, Sloan is my Sloan first is child. Sloan is the first. I Sloan love the names. First. Thank you. Which is another conversation. <laughs> How, who came up with the names? They're good names. I mean, Sloan, I get like, I wouldn't say Sloan is named after Sloan Peterson from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's where I know the name from, yeah. of course, right? Yeah. Um, and I love 80s movies. Isn't and... Shauna the sister? I think it, I think it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's a dork, though. I don't like that one. I like uh, other Shauna's. No, she's amazing. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think a couple of things. I think when I became a mother, I think when I was pregnant, I feel like the perception of me in in corporate America changed immediately. Whether that's true or not, it's how I felt. Yeah. Um, What happened exactly that made you feel that way? So preface it was saying I worked for an amazing law firm with people I really like and and respect. Um, But, you know, uh, we were going to trial, right? And there there was like, can I go to trial? I'll be eight months pregnant. And I did. And it was fine. Um, But, you know, there were questions around it, questions around traveling, questions around. Like, could you win the case with a pregnant woman? I mean, or just like, are you you up for it? I think it's really kind of all of the like, are you up for it? Well, eight months pregnant, yeah, you're swollen, your your breath is, it's hard to like, like, all of it. I'm always up for it. No, but I mean, it's just like, I just, I don't know. Like, it just, I guess it bothered me because I'm really type A and I didn't want anyone to question my commitment. Um, And also... I think it was more kind of the outside world, right? Like, you're just looked at differently. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like you're looked at as, like, a, a vessel week. and not, week. like, a human, you know, yeah. not your own person. No, totally. Um, So that was part of it. And then the other part of it, too, on the flip side, is that when I became a mother, the way I valued my own time changed dramatically. And I liked being a lawyer. I was good at being a lawyer. But I was never in love with it. If there was ever a time I was in love with it was when I worked in Manhattan during the financial crisis because it was just fascinating. Mm-hmm. I was like li- living was it, in the middle We're talking like history. Lehman Bear. Those were all my clients that all imploded, which was what yeah, that's forced the world us to I move to in, Seattle. Right? That's super crazy. Um, like I was in London in Canary Wharf at a client's office the day Lehman fell like, across the street. Yeah, and like that watching was that, it was like the world yeah. changed, right? Oh, 100%. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, but I never... You know, after I left New York, I didn't love it anymore. I think it was really the type of work I was doing in New York, too, which was a lot of, like, government investigations. And that, that type of work mm-hmm. was really interesting to me. And straight litigation was quite different. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of writing. It was a lot of being alone in a room. And I am 100% extroverted, right? And so, anyway, when I became a mom, like, how I spent my time changed, what, mm-hmm. how I wanted to spend my time. And I needed to do something I loved. Yeah. Like, I was just... Yeah, you're like, if I'm going to not be with my child, I need to feel, like, passionate about what I'm doing. Right, and I, I knew totally that I wanted that. to work. Like, I love my children, but yeah. I'm not... Um, I needed I need my yeah. I need my Your work. Own thing. My work is important to me. Yeah, and so then walk me through how that led... Were you... You were in a um, workspace that didn't feel... Yeah, so I started thinking about alternatives uh, to lawyering um, and thought about going out on my own. And I think that's really interesting to note that, like, I think the American narrative is that when women quit corporate America, they go home. But a lot of them are doing other things. A lot of them are starting businesses, Mm -hmm. perhaps not the venture scale businesses that we think about, Mm -hmm. but smaller businesses, lifestyle businesses. And um, yeah, and going into their second or third act, women are actually starting businesses at five times the rate of men in America. Um, and I so I started thinking about doing that. And so I'm really type A, which is not surprising. So I started going to classes on like how to write a business plan, how to do your financial projections. And those classes were held in co-working spaces. Mm-hmm. And I was familiar with the idea of co-working. My brother. That's so funny. I was Googling yeah. how, how to write a business plan. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm like $50 million within three years <laughs> was where I started. My uh, brother-in-law is a developer and has always worked freelance. And so he's always worked in co-working spaces. So I knew about it. And um I walked into these co-working spaces and I was like, I, I was just, I was really surprised by how masculine they all felt. But it's interesting because like if you look at WeWork, Industrious, Notel, Rocket Space, Convene, Galvanize, they were all founded by men. And so then I kind of, I thought, well, like, is anyone thinking about women in the design of these spaces? Because like I came from Wall Street where it is mostly men. It was built for men, by men, decades and decades ago. But the future of work is being built today. 
when women make up almost more than half the workforce. So Mm -hmm. why aren't we driving the design and the thought and the community and the leadership? Mm -hmm. And so that's really what the Riveter was premised on. So you had an aha moment. Yeah. And then walk me through the timeline between the aha moment and the, I think I need to incorporate a business. Yeah. So that was in the summer of 2016. I was on maternity leave. I I still can't, my mouth is on the floor if anybody could see me. I, (laughs) I mean, summer 2016 was like a blip. That was two minutes ago. Yeah. Look what you've done. So, okay. So the moment is that you... Yeah. I was on maternity leave with my second daughter, Reese. And that was when all of these ideas kind of percolated. I went back to work after my maternity leave um, because I wasn't sure. Yeah. I didn't know, like, what pushes you over the edge? How do you make the decision? Like, my husband and I made a lot of spreadsheets with our financial runway. And so you were going to self-fund it and just kind of figure out... Yeah, the time was going to build one. Yeah, well, of course. That's how you always think, and yeah. so, unless you're... Yeah. Uh, well, some okay. days. Um, but so um, it was really... But I kind of like kept working on the idea, but didn't pull any triggers. And then the 2016 election happened. Yeah. And, and then I quit my job. Because you're like, I have to be in the ring. Right. It was kind of like, if there's ever a time to enter the arena, now would be it. Yeah. And if I'm ever going to try to solve these problems, this is the time to do it. And yeah. so that's when I quit my job, gave a lot of notice, so left early January of 2017. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I heard about the Riveter, a girlfriend invited me to a yoga class. Oh, cool. And then I was like, oh, cool. In my mind, it was like, I didn't know what, really what it was. Um, and then I was introduced to you and we sat down mm-hmm. the first time. And you definitely seemed like you were drinking from the fire hose then. I'm sure you'd take that day back anytime now. <laughs> because that's like, you're like, that's like, please. Um, but what role are you playing today as the CEO versus what you were playing when I met you that first six months in the business? I think. Because how many employees do you have now? 26. You're 26. Okay. And growing. And growing. And growing. And now you've had to raise money. We raise a lot of money. Um, And how have you gone about that? And has that been, like, break down your time percentage-wise. Recruiting for the Riveter. It changes a lot. It changes every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And and with, like, the cycles that we're in. Mm -hmm. When I have to raise money to grow, that is my, it's like 80% of what I'm doing. Yeah. I I I learned pretty early on, and I would give this advice to any entrepreneur who raises money, that when you have to go raise money, you need to make that your almost full-time job. Mm -hmm. It is really hard to do multiple things when you're raising money. And that's why it's really important to have an amazing team around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, over the past year and a half, learned to hire from my weaknesses. Totally. Right? Like, I know much more now what I'm yeah. good at. and what, what, are, where, what are you not good at? So, I... You're probably like me. I'm going to guess. The I'm de- not. The details. Yeah. I mean, the like, I'm really good at building this movement. Yeah. And, and, and being the face being and the face driving. And driving and aligning us with and incredible leading. people and brands and experiences. Um, I find it very hard to, at the same time, manage a lot of people. Yeah. You're like, I don't want to be a micromanager. I just want you to do like I would. Right. Your expectation yeah. is like, I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. Right. Yeah. So yeah. just step up and <laughs> stop ask like ask for forgiveness, not permission. Right. Just go. But that's like that's a yeah. mindset, right? That's why yeah. we're in the What uh attributes are you looking for for a person who fits well yeah. at the Riveter? Yeah, I mean I would say entrepreneurial mindset. Totally. Like I think so we're a really early stage, really high growth startup. And that can sound like the most fun thing in the world to a lot of people. Until they realize, wait, <laughs> it's ten at night and I'm working. 
right? The reality of it is very hard. Yeah. And I will say, and I think this is very true, that it is because the numbers show it. Like what we're trying to do, we have different walls to scale than men do, right? Oh, yeah, right. Well, you, just, you've got, you don't have the wind at your back in the same way. We don't. Right. Yeah. And so I th- and I feel like we have to do it 10 times better. Yeah. Which may or may not be true. But that's my that's my feeling. Well, you know what? If that's what fuels you and drives you, then. Yeah. That's... Well, you feel like as a I think as a female founder in the entrepreneurial community, I feel like an outsider in a lot of ways. And uh, I don't. You're not an outsider. But like that. But that drives me. Right. Of like I want I don't want women in the entrepreneurial community to feel like an outsider. Yeah. Like I don't. That's not right. Yeah. And so I want to help change that. But I think like. The cool thing about the Riveter, because we have a very public profile and we have a mission, we are for profit for sure, but we mm-hmm. have a mission, Yeah, is that we get a lot of people who want to come join our team. Because they care about the mission. They care about the mission, right? Yeah. And I've been able to, like my leadership team is spectacular. Uh, it's two women with a lot of experience in building companies, mm-hmm. uh, way more experienced in it than I am. And mm-hmm. I also, like, I am not afraid to hire people with a lot more experience than no, I have, I completely right? Agree. I think that's really important. I, I mean, I'm perfectly okay being vulnerable and being like, yeah, I'm, I suck at that. Yeah. And so can you go do that? Yeah. Um, and then they're psyched because I'm not micromanaging them. Right. And I get out of their way to just go do it. Um, so who handles all the programming? You've been able to – I feel like it, the programming is um, getting stronger and stronger and shifting. And so now, but now you've got different cities, different locations. Yeah. Are you do you have to pay these people? Or are they also part of the vision and the mission? So we definitely pay speakers when um when we are putting big events in and 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 branding them ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's important. Um but we do a lot of programming with people who would like to meet three of their members mm-hmm. and or promote or promote to. a book or you yeah. know. Uh, so there's all sorts of varied levels of it. Mm-hmm. Um we have an incredible team that handles our programming. Mm-hmm. Uh Camilla Whitmore is our yeah. Uh, national events director. She came to us from SoulCycle. Yeah. Um, and then we do um, a lot in Los Angeles. We have an incredible director of events there named Marta Statmiller, who's done a lot with women's organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just kind of lean into the network that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had speakers from, I think in the past month, we've had like Howard Schultz, Jane Fonda, Tammy Duckworth. Yeah, amazing I mean, ones. Yeah. And so I know that you've had some political guests. Mm-hmm. How um, how does that play a role within the Riveter. Yeah. Does that feel like that can be one and the same or that it, you might pull, it might be polarizing or alienating? So we alienating? have had political guests from different sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. It's important to me. Um, we, we don't support one party or the other at the Riveter. What we support is the idea of equality of opportunity for everyone, regardless of their gender or their race or their social class. And um, that's important to us. And we will be political about that. Yeah. Um, As and that means, be. right, like we don't believe there should be a gender pay gap. Yeah. Right. White women make 78 cents to a man's dollar. Women of color, it is remarkably less. Yeah. And so when we talk about equality of opportunity, I don't think that's right. And what do you have to say? I mean, you can't we can't solve everything. Trying to create a different paradigm for women in corporate America is at the heart of what I believe in and fight for. I mean, from from one side of from like the most basic standpoint, like everybody should care about this because I know I completely it's agree. the biggest market inefficiency in our entire economy. We grow the economy through population or productivity. When we are losing half of women after they have kids, that is a huge boon to our productivity. So how much stronger could we be as an economy if we all gave a shit about this? Yes. Right. And actually yeah. came up with solutions. Yeah. On the other hand, and I think this is, you know, being a mother is incredibly important to me. And equality of opportunity begins the day we're born. 
or it should begin the day we're born, right? And so I'm involved in an organization here in Seattle called Westside Baby. Oh, we did. We volunteered with yeah. them. I love Westside Baby. Well, and they provide yeah. diapers and yeah. goods to families in need. And after I had my first daughter, which I found to be very stressful to transition into parenthood, you're mm-hmm. like, what am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. And there are a lot of, and I have a lot of privilege, and there yeah. are a lot of families who don't have that privilege. And there's a something I didn't know, but you can't buy diapers with federal assistance, with SNAP or WIC. So families who are in need can't use the federal assistance they get to diaper their children. And this leads to a place where babies are getting sick, right, because they're not being diapered. They're keeping diapers on too long. And it's just ridiculous. I didn't realize that. It's just like it's this ridiculous thing. These are these basic things. Right. And that's like a very and, – and the reason I like West Side Baby is they're tackling a problem that to me seems fixable. Yeah. Right? It's a discrete problem. There are a lot of problems that we have to tackle to lead to a place where we have equality of opportunity in America. Yeah. But diapering babies is a concrete thing, and it's something I care a lot about. Um, And then the other thing I would say is voting rights. Yeah. We make it hard to vote in this country. Yeah. And I think that— Well, and that's like a um, little—it's almost like the fine print. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's incredibly important that we work on voting rights. Those are big things. And so um, when you're looking at, like, how can we be helpful as a community in California and in Washington State, where right now you have the Riveter, but as you continue to grow— how can we be helpful besides joining? Joining. Um, <laughs> I'm a member. Right, yes. Um, but besides joining, is it thinking of people, thinking of speakers? Um, what is the vetting process like? Is there a vetting process for membership? Meaning meaning that can anybody just be a member or do you have to make sure that there are people who have the mindset of inclusion? No, anybody can be a member. Uh, we're built on a model of inclusivity. Um, but what if you get like kind of the like hashtag no assholes? Like what if... What do you do? If we haven't had a problem with it. So, and I, I like to think that's how it grows, right? People yeah. who come to us know who we are and what we stand for. And so we haven't had any sort of a problem with that. Um, you know, we, I always say it's hard enough to get a seat at the table. We want everybody to come to ours. I think there are a lot of clubs in this world that are based on exclusivity. And I don't know. It wasn't appealing to me. Yeah. Um, and so, so now you've, I mean, you're growing. So now you've got these five locations. How many are you trying to get to? I mean, there's not 2019. Is there is there? Yeah. I mean, you've got a business plan. I mean, by the end of 2019, I think we'll have 12 locations. Holy crapola. Okay, so 12 locations and um, and then 22 locations by the end of 2020. You know, let's keep growing. And that might sound like a lot, but we work grew really fast. Yeah. I mean, we work is only eight years old. Yep. Um, And so how has the fundraising process been? Did you ever have any weird stories or crazy, like, I cannot believe this just happened to me? Yeah. I mean, recently I was sitting with a female venture capital investor, and she told me that my strategy for my next capital raise should be to go after VCs that had sexual harassment lawsuits. So I could be their gold star, essentially. And I was like... to save them? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's like... The poster child? I mean, that... Like that was, and then I told another female VC about the suggestion, and the other female VC was like, "That's a great piece of advice." And I'm like, "This cannot be the advice we are giving one another, right? Like, I can't because well, they were just thinking like, cut through it all. Let's let's just like capitalize on this. Here's the fastest way to get funding. But the thing is, is that when you work with investors, you're not just taking their money; you're working. You're being in business, right? You're in business with them. They're like, I don't really want to be in business. Shoulder to shoulder, right? Exactly. I didn't really want to be in business with that. But then the other thing is, like, I have this. I've been thinking a lot about this, right? I feel like. Women, like, tell one another how to survive the system like it is rather than how to change the system. Yeah. And I was, I've was i always been able to find incredible partners to join us in this journey as investors. It's been hard. But um, 
And I'd rather take that approach. Yeah. I think it's really, really smart. And I think it's like, why not be the bar raiser? Why not be the person who's upping the level? Right. Um, and yeah. And I think like, I think I'm optimistic about most people in the world and that they're good people. And I think the system will change for funding with women. The more women just get funded and the more we do this and go and go into the system. And so I spend time every week making connections for other female founders. Um, I think it's important to do it. People did it for me. Yeah, I think it's important also. Um, and so how do you find time for all this? Can you give us, can you give our listeners and me personally any efficiency hacks, time <laughs> management hacks? I know that you've described yourself as like an energizer bunny. And you and I have talked about how I tend to like completely check out and unwind. Um, but what what do you do to completely like make this all happen? So I have lots of help at home. My mother mm-hmm. lives with us, which okay. is like the only way any of this works. Yeah. Um, and I have, tri- I have full time. Let's just time. pretend that you don't have kids, though. Just what you're oh. doing at work is insane. Um, I mean, that's a whole part of it is your your kids. But just all I delegate like I am not the person who does yeah. everything. Right? No, like, I delegate as much as I possibly can. But I do need... you have tools? Do you have actual tools? Like what do you use? Do you, like Outlook? I have a Google Calendar. Okay. We're migrating, I think, soon to Outlook. Yeah. Um, we use Slack a lot yeah. as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge believer in in-person conversations. You mm-hmm. can cut through everything as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so you pick up the phone faster than you're going to have like yep. 20 emails back and forth. Right. I also like, I do not write long emails. I don't yeah. write introductions. I don't We're write ends. So I just similar. write the middle. I'm like, here's really the if I've got this one Mine's question. Mine's all in one subject yeah. line. People are like, really, Shauna? Right, right. And or I told I my why? team, like I think at the beginning, people are like, is she mad? Is no, she? That's and I'm like, so no, weird. this is just how I write things. My team is always like, they prep people for like working with me. They're like, don't worry, she's not mad at you if she just writes one sentence. <laughs> But I'm like, yes, no, on it. Yeah. That's all yeah. I say. All right. Because, I mean, that's just as fast as you can do. I never try to get to perfect. Yeah. I just try to get to good enough and figure we'll figure out the rest of it on the way. Yeah. I love it all. Um, okay. So I know that we're on a time crunch, which is one of your time hacks. I'm like, <laughs> it is true. Like, give me I an like hour really, and you're like, how about yeah. 45 minutes? I'm like, crap, but I'm a talker. <laughs> um, so if, if Riveters now, let's like fast forward. We've sold the company and we're gajillionaires. What are you doing now? Are you on the beach? Are you 3.0 political Amy? I mean, I'm never it, someone like, Amy who will go for to president. The beach. I mean, I think like, yeah, I think someday. It's not PTA mom. Like, what are we doing? I think 3.0? someday I'd like to run for office. Yeah. yeah. I mean, be amazing at it. I think it'd be so hard. I I have such admiration to all of the women out there who are running for office. This How crazy season. would it be if you were like president in this podcast? <laughs> I was like, do you remember the time I interviewed you? That would be crazy. Um, I don't like, listen, I don't, who knows? I just think I want to be, I want to do all the good I can. Okay. Let's I love just it. put it that so, way. So final two questions. What are the three traits that you want to pass on to uh, Sloan and Merritt and Reese? Reese? The three traits well, they don't necessarily all have to be your traits, but I'd like to know your traits that you'd like to pass on. To be kind, to be hardworking, and to be optimistic. I love that. And um, I guess it's going to be two more questions. Which one's most likely like you? So Race, far? my middle daughter. The middle. Oh, nice. Middle child. Rooting, <laughs> rooting for the middle child. And um, finally, since this podcast is called What Fuels You, what fuels you? What fuels me? Which is like, how do you want to be like your legacy? I mean... <sighs> It's two things. I think it's the belief that I'm an important person and worth a world that looks different and that my daughters are too. I love that. Yeah. I've gotten chills twice, which is like doesn't happen. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. So if anybody um, has any questions about how to join the Riveter, you can just go on the website, riveter.com. Yep. Yep. 
correct? Yes, and Riveter.co. Riveter.co. We cannot get the .com. .co. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with before we sign off and you go to your next crazy meeting? Just thank you. It was oh, really great to talk with so all of you. Fun, and Shauna, right? thanks for having me on. I love yeah. getting to spend time with it's you. It's great. I know, me too. Yay. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.